1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia of FT Alphaville. And before we get to today's show, a quick note that we're going to tape a long extended interview with economist Joe Stiglitz next week. We're really looking forward to it. And if you have any questions for Professor Stiglitz, you can call us at 917-551-5012 or email us at alphachat at ft.com. But for now, let's get on with today's show. Three topics on the program today. First up, FT chief investment correspondent John Authors is here to discuss his upcoming feature on indexed investing and the power of index providers. Then we're going to talk about People's QE, which is an idea from Jeremy Corbyn, the leftist and current frontrunner to be the next leader of the UK's Labour Party. Matt Klein, my colleague from Alphaville, will explain why it might be the one genuinely good idea that Corbyn has. And then finally, Shannon Bond is here to talk about the NBC Universal Investment In the Media Properties, BuzzFeed, and Vox. Stick around. Lots of fun stuff today. First up on the show today, John Authors, the FT's chief investment correspondent. He's here to talk to us about the rise of index providers and why it could have potentially destabilizing consequences for financial markets. John you know, this is your first time on Alpha Chat, and this article that we're going to talk about isn't going to be released until Monday. You're yeah. already giving things away.
2: Well, it's the beginning of a very long series. You've got a you've got a steady stream of right. uh, revelations and insights to look forward to over the next two weeks. Yeah, this Alpha is Chat, this like is great.
1: This is to me this this signifies the fact that because the FT is in between owners. Having recently been sold mm. to Nikkei, we essentially don't care. We're doing whatever we want.
2: Very we briefly, giving yes, away the we, store. yes. Just just so that just so that everyone knows, we used obviously, as you can tell from FTSE's name, to have a big part of FTSE. but uh, we uh, sold our stake in that some some time ago. So we are in a brief window when the FT is not under the same roof as any index provider. Yes, no so conflict of interest here yes. for the time being.
1: Yes, but we can give away we can give away the content of our newspaper. A week in advance. I
2: think we can. Because we yes.
1: don't even care right now. Yes, It's not even noon on Thursday when we're recording this, and you and I are both drunk. We
2: are an online-driven yes. entity these days. <laughs>
1: Full disclosure, you and I are not drunk. No. Uh, let's start with <laughs> uh, an example that I'm, you I'm give. hitting the green tea. Yes. <laughs> John, let's start with this, okay? Mm. Just to explain at a very basic level for our audience, mm. who are the index providers, and what do they do?
2: Okay. Uh, you've probably heard the names of most of the big... Uh, index providers. A lot of them have done deals with each other in recent years. There's S&P Dow Jones is comfortably the biggest, obviously formed of the uh, merger from S&P and Dow Jones, uh, overseen by McGraw-Hill. Then you have MSCI. Many years ago, it was it, it was an outcrop of Morgan Stanley and, uh, and Capital Group. It's been an independent company for the better part of a decade now. Then you have FTSE Russell, no longer linked to the uh, the FT wholly controlled by the London Stock Exchange uh, and is still digesting the acquisition of the Russell indices here in the States. In the equity market, those are the big three. You also have a, a group of banks led by Barclays that dominate indexes for bonds, and you also have uh, index families that look after commods. What they do, very simply, is, is provide benchmarks or indexes. They try to provide something that traditionally was useful for journalists like us trying to get a quick take on the direction of the market, useful for fund managers trying to get some handle on whether they were doing well or not. They traditionally were passive trackers or reflectors of the market. The question now, and this is what we'll doubtless be coming to, is that so much more weight is being put on them that it's very difficult to see how they can avoid leading the market rather than just reflecting it.
1: Right. So, And we're definitely are going to talk a lot about the shift from active to passive yes. that you just mentioned. But I actually think we should start by talking about an example that you give in yep. your upcoming story about what happened in China and its A-shares market yep. and the decision by MSCI, one of the indexes that you mm. just mentioned, not to include those A-shares, in one of its indexes. So why don't you tell us about that? Okay,
2: now, MSCI, MSCI is by far the dominant index provider for people who are doing international investing. FTSE is giving it strong competition, but MSCI is plainly the big one. Right. They have not included the domestic A-shares market because... It fails the test of access up until now. You can only, as a Westerner, invest in A shares if you're going through a a quota system. There were also concerns about liquidity. They're not just interested in levels of economic development. They're interested in whether you really can access this market and invest in it.
1: And there was some hope for a while that Chinese A-shares would be included. In the, other words, yes, a lot they, of investors expected it.
2: Yeah, they, are ve- they have to be very careful because so much money follows them that they are. They telescope their actions. So for a year, they announced that they were uh, considering a proposal to admit A-shares on a very gentle basis. Because if you include all the A-shares at 100% of their market cap, suddenly – China is almost half the entire emerging market index, suddenly people have to pour money into yeah. China. In it was a, a huge decision. Yes. And everyone assumed reasonably, one of the many fascinating indicators that China was running into trouble, that let's not go down too far down that sure. road, but it was obvious that the uh, the Chinese authorities were very, very keen to have this happen. They made various moves to open the market to widen the quotas. And plainly, this would have led to a lot of money moving into them. But the index providers are also very beholden to their ultimate clients, who are the big fund managers. The fund managers, in the last week or two before the announcement was due, seeing the way MSCI was was going, put a lot of pressure the other way, saying they did not want to be investing in them. Plainly, some of them would have felt embarrassed because at that point, the A shares were up a lot and they would have looked silly. They would have had to buy in at the top. So the decision was made, no, they're not ready yet. That is plainly, to me, at least one of the causes. It's obviously a domestically driven market, but many right. people were hoping there'd be this influx of money. That's one of the reasons that the A-share market turned when it did. Right. And plainly, it was reasonable before the announcement, to assume that there was going to be an influx of money coming. People had positioned their money accordingly. As soon as that came off the equation, it became a big reason not to hold A shares.
1: Right. So that's one example Mm. of the way in which index providers now are not just reflecting what's happening in the global marketplace, Mm. but can also actually influence the course of events.
2: Yes, there are plenty of others, but this was a particularly blatant one. MSCI, in my opinion, really went as far as you could possibly ask them to do to, to cushion this to be as transparent as they could, but there was no avoiding having a very big effect. Right.
1: One other example, one other country-specific yeah. example I want to go through, Canada yes. was underrepresented not just for years but for decades. Yes. You talk about that in your piece and the consequences that it's had yes. for Canada as well. What
2: happened there? No, okay, so the S&P 500 has for long been the prime index for U.S. fund managers. The, the global fund management world is still completely dominated by the U.S. At one point, the S&P did include some Canadian stocks as well. It was a North American index. So there were, you know, there were a few Canadian miners and banks that were in there. People started to look internationally. We're talking now back into the 70s, early 80s. And very quickly, MSCI became the hegemonic index provider for international what they were interested in was the EFA index. EFA stands for Europe, Australasia and Far East. It doesn't include any of North America. So you would if you were if you were benchmarked either passively or if you're an active manager just looking at a benchmark, looking for comparison, you would have one pot of money that was exclusively in the US and another pot of money which was in all the world's developed countries, apart from Canada. Right. And this is still the, the main case now, and if you want one of the reasons why Canada—it's not just that Canadians are sort of sweetly reasonable, decent people with a <laughs> with a sensibly run banking system—that so has a lot to do yeah. with it. If, you, if if you want one reason why why Canada has an abnormally calm and sensible stock market, it's right. because uh, it's because institution it, it is historically still underinvested compared to uh, its the size of its economy by by big institutions. They view things through the lens of the S&P 500 and the MSCI Efa and that there is only one large developed country which is in neither and that's Canada. It's also not an emerging market yeah. either. So once they started developing m- putting money into emerging markets right. that was good for Korea but didn't help Canada.
1: But th- there's kind of an intriguing flip side to this which is also included in your piece which mm. is that if the lack of inclusion in an index leads to less investment less capital flows into a country, then the inclusion in the index could consequently lead to too much investment in a place. It could lead to the kind of self-reinforcing trend that leads to bubbles, right? That was, and, that yeah. was the
2: great concern ahead of the MSCI A-shares announcement. I, a lot of the people I was talking to there were saying that, well, what's really going to cause this A-share market to blow up and go into total bubble territory is when, when it gets entered into the index and all the foreign money comes in. Uh, which which is which is true. We now know that what in fact happened was uh, yeah. almost the inverse of that. But that was an extremely reasonable fear, and you can find that particularly uh, in the the uh, Russell two thousand, which is the hegemonic index for small caps. When you get big enough to get into the Russell two thousand, suddenly people have to buy you. You're obviously you're. Previously, one, not even one of the 3,000 biggest companies in the U.S. You weren't all that big. Suddenly, everybody needing to have some kind of a position in you will have a, a very significant effect. When companies yeah. get promoted or demoted between the 2,000 and the 1,000, which is their their large cap, similarly, that has very noticeable sharp effects. Yeah, the day, so- and the day the Russell makes their moves, only happens once a year, and it's regularly the single most active day trading in them.
1: Yeah, um, I actually want to stick with that idea that this is a symptom, essentially, of the size of these indexes yeah. and the index providers. The big ones in particular have become extremely profitable. I mean, yes. give us a sense of sort of you, – you mentioned – you said the word hegemonic, right? Yes. Uh, give us a sense of how hegemonic
2: they are. Well, uh, in the case of um, open-ended funds, this isn't passive funds. This is This is all funds, which is yeah. still primarily – Active. If you look in the U.S., Standard & Poor's, I've got the numbers in front of me here, that, um, Standard & Poor's S&P indexes accounts for, is the benchmark for 34% of all open-ended fund assets in this country, which is $4.35 trillion, with a T, dollars. And then Barclays, the hegemonic bond provider, has almost exactly $3 trillion benchmarked against it if you are that important for framing the perception of investment managers okay blackrock on its own is has slightly more money than that yeah. blackrock is more important than these index providers but they're actually comparable it makes sense to to regard the views of uh, index compilers as being uh, something that's akin to the the, the role of the, the biggest institutions and they make money in the case of uh, the s&p 500, the SPDR, which is the the world's largest ETF that tracks the S and P 500, announces that it pays a license fee of just over three basis points, which on 200 billion or so dollars or whatever it has at the moment is extremely easy money. Given that S and P 500, we're going to be compiling compiling that index anyway.
1: Sure. I want to talk about the consequences for market efficiency then, because mm. something that's often discussed is that. Um, with indexed investing becoming so important, so big, mm. the rise of ETFs, uh, questions about the kind of dubious performance of hedge funds and yes. other active vehicles, the worry is that the entire investment world can't be passive because then you don't have the kind of investing that mm. actively tries to price things correctly. Yes. In other words, part of the capital al- allocation process is that people are trying to find the winners, and some people are invariably going to end up with losers. And that's how you end up pricing securities. And the worry is that that can't happen to the extent that it should if all investment is passive or if too much investment is passive. How worried should we be about this?
2: I I think we should be pretty worried. It's a slightly controversial viewpoint. Obviously, we cannot get to 100% passive. We would not have a functioning capital market at all if we got to 100% (laughs) passive. Um, And I think the critical point that is not totally understood is that it's not just about passive. Um, If you're an active manager, you are very, very, very anxious to be ahead of the benchmark. You're very anxious to be ahead of your peers. But most of all, you're very anxious not to be too far behind your peers. So the phenomenon, as passive gets bigger... Passive becomes the reference point for the entire active industry, which, yes, it's true, is still bigger than passive. The actual amount of money managed actively is still considerably greater than the money managed passively. Right. And so you get what I like to call the wildebeest phenomenon. If you're a wildebeest on the Serengeti and you don't want to get chomped by the cheetah or the lion, you don't make an attempt to go all out and try to be right at the front of the herd at the risk that you run out of puff and end up at the back of the herd. Either the front or the back, the back is a dangerous place to be. You want to be right in the middle. Similarly, if you're an active manager, you act in such a way as to avert any risk that you have embarrassingly bad performance, which will prompt people to uh, pull money out of you. You're not paid to beat the market. You're paid to accumulate assets if you're a fund manager. So the phenomenon of, uh, of you know, the power of the index becomes that much greater. A final point on this is that if you are going to try to beat the benchmark, obviously financial theory is that you get return, extra return, in return for taking extra risk. So more or less everybody is thinking of themselves in terms of taking slightly more risk than the index. Right. So the risk, again, is that this will lead to ever bigger self-reinforcing bubbles. Okay. And I suppose a final point um, is that most indexes are are weighted according to market value that means that you 're taking the market price as red back in ninety nine when indexation was already getting pretty big or it 's far bigger now that meant that if cisco was being was trading at two hundred times its earnings and was therefore officially the biggest stock in the world, you had to buy more of Cisco than anything else, even if you plainly yeah, if you're trying valuation. to be the responsible type, sure. It, it, and so you can argue that at, at the margin, it encourages – it actively moves money towards the most overvalued stocks. Right. That's a very worrying phenomenon.
1: Okay. Two final issues related yep. to this piece. Uh, and these are two issues that I think you've also been covering quite a bit uh, in your weekly columns. Conflicts of interest and liquidity, mm. especially in the bond market as yes. it
2: relates to indexed investing in bonds. Yes. What should we know about that? Right, bond indexes are particularly troublesome because traditionally they are weighted according to the amount you've got on issuance, which is a perfectly logical thing to do, but it means that the more indebted you become and therefore presumably the worse at all other things equal, the worse of a risk you become, the higher a proportion you take in the index right. you can you can uh you can. Increase your weighting, increase the amount that uh, investors who are following you as a benchmark are, re- are required to buy of you by issuing yet more debt that's plainly procyclical and yes. alarming you can you can, there are, you can certainly argue that the arguments I made against market cap weighting for equities can be overdone on bonds. This is a serious issue. it meant that Argentina was a big, big chunk of the MB for emerging market bonds index Italy with its you know has a particularly big liquid government debt market shows up rather more than it one, would norm, one would feel comfortable in, the, in developed market debt indexes. Now we add to that the risk of conflict of interest. If you're a bank who um, uh, conceptually, I'm not arguing that, that this directly happens, but it's obviously a conceptual possibility. If you're a bank and you, you have the power to add something, uh, add an issuer to the index, thereby requiring its followers to buy it, and then issue some more of that debt, which is an obvious huge potential conflict of interest. Now, post-LIBOR scandal, post all the fears there, you do see the banks trying to sell off their index businesses. Barclays in particular should be a very lucrative, big big, uh, fish for somebody to catch. The banks plainly recognize that there is a risk... You don't need to prove intent. There is a risk that they that they could be uh, hit for fines in the future if there is any appearance of a conflict of interest. So this probably will mean that the existing index, index families, whoever gets their hands on the various bank bond indexing businesses, will get that much more powerful.
1: You know, th- there's something I- – I don't know if it's philosophically troubling or mm. conceptually troubling or whatever about this entire topic, which is that – For years and years and years, the advice to investors was, listen, you can't beat the market, okay? Just buy a Vanguard fund or something, okay? And now the entire world is shifting in the direction of passive indexed investing, and it's leading to all these – I don't know if these are unanticipated or unintended consequences, but clearly the world is a more complicated place than the advocates for passive investing in the past might have hoped.
2: And that's, a, that's a very fair point. It's just something I've been wrestling with for uh, five years, I suppose. I wrote a book about this some five years ago now. It's what you might call the paradox of thrift. What it makes sense for one individual to do is absolutely not what you want everyone to do. In the same way that after a recession, any one individual will rationally pull in their horns and deleverage, but the government would like, and the rest of us would like, everybody to st- spend money and get us out of it. Sure, this Similarly, is really quickly
1: for our listeners, a paradox of thrift. Yeah. When things are going badly, if everybody starts saving their money and not spending it, it exacerbates yes, the precisely. severity of the recession. So what you would want is for you yourself individually as a household to stop yes. save, to stop spending money, but you want everybody else to keep spending it. Precisely.
2: Right. Now, when it comes to the choice between active and passive, uh, it's extremely difficult to beat the market as markets have become more efficient. As the fund management industry has become bigger and more sophisticated, it gets ever harder. You do know that what the costs are going to be. Costs are predictable into the future. They're, they're the single best element to predict or compare likely returns in the future. Therefore, for most of my readers, my advice to them is emphatically: you should be impassive. I do almost well, no active investing myself because you obviously, can't, in my, right? in my yeah. job, the conflicts of interest would be horrendous. My kids. My kids' college saving plans are 100% indexed. I'm completely happy with that because that is absolutely the best solution for them at this point. I do not want everybody else to do that. That is not something that everybody logically can do. It's a serious problem. It's a problem one one can see. I don't have a good uh, argument for you for how to get out of it. The growth of smart beta, essentially building indexes, which allow for low costs that attempt to beat the market, is one way out of it. Coming up with a much better model for active management, which somehow or other charges less. Right. Good active managers are somehow prepared not to charge so much for their services would obviously help as well. But it's a problem. There's no question. It's It's arguably one of the fundamental dilemmas of shareholder capitalism at this moment.
1: And that's a cheery note on which to end our discussion. John Authors, Chief Investment Correspondent of the Financial Times. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Moving right along, we're now going to talk about Jeremy Corbyn and People's QE with my colleague on Alphaville, Matt C. Klein. Matt, welcome back. Thank you for having me. You know, there's nothing that people like more than a couple of Americans talking about British political economy, right? Absolutely. <laughs>
3: well, you know, it's better than the alternative, which is as Americans working in a British paper, it's usually a lot of British people talking about what's going on in our country. So it's a nice little That's role reversal. That's true.
1: We get to give back now. Right. Okay. Jeremy Corbyn. He seems to be the front runner right now to be the next leader of the UK Labor Party, despite, we should note, that he has some fairly out-there ideas, some hard-left ideas.
3: Right. Everything from talking, holding up Chavez as a role model to referring to Hezbollah and Hamas as his friends to defending Russian actions in Ukraine, uh, wanting to get out of NATO. Bit of an oddball.
1: Right. So not not so much the kind of thoughtful populist socialist of the Bernie Sanders stripe, okay? Before we talk about people's QE, we should also just go over for our listeners what quantitative easing is in the first place. QE, quantitative easing. Why don't you tell us what sort of a standard issue quantitative easing looks like?
3: Sure, and I think this is important because this is ultimately a mechanical question, and the reason why people's QE is potentially compelling is because it addresses some mechanical deficiencies with normal QE. Normal quantitative easing is essentially... The central bank goes and finds people with bonds, that government bonds, that are worth $100 and they pay $100 and they get the bonds. And then the people who had the bonds now have $100 in cash. And then the hope is that they then take those $100 and do something with it. Probably they won't go out and spend it because you know they were content having their $100 in bonds. They'll probably go out and buy another bond. That's the theory. And if you do this enough, the expectation is that those bonds, as as people buy more bonds then the price of the bonds goes up a little bit. That means interest rates will go down a little bit, all else being equal. Uh, That makes it easier for various entities to borrow, loosens financial conditions on the margin. It's roughly analogous in in terms of what the goal is in the transmission mechanism to cutting short-term interest rates because it's the same idea of the Fed or, or any central bank, Bank of England wants to make it easier for entities to borrow. They lower interest rates. This is just lowering interest rates further out at the long end of the curve.
1: Okay, so it, just in case it wasn't obvious for our listeners, in the example you gave, it was a hypothetical. The bonds themselves are not $100, obviously. Right. Also, the people that you refer to are institutions, right. right? They're people that either own bonds or they're the banks. Right. Uh, we should note that one of the criticisms of quantitative easing that sometimes comes up is that if the Fed buys these bonds and the banks themselves end up just keeping the cash they got from the sale of these bonds on reserve with the Federal Reserve, right, or on reserve with the central bank, that it doesn't actually lead to too much more stimulus. So we should talk about the other ways in which quantitative easing, at least in theory, is thought to work, right? So you mentioned the first, which is that it lowers interest rates overall, all things equal. Another is that there are fewer – outstanding fixed income securities. And so that leads to more purchases of riskier debt that are still out there in the market that you can buy. The purchase of that risky debt makes it easier, for instance, for companies to borrow money and to spend it on things that stimulate the economy. And then finally, there's what's known as the signaling mechanism, which is that if the central bank is buying these bonds that it is committed to stimulating the economy and that that might have some self-reinforcing behavior of the other market participants and economic agents still out there in the market. They're seeing that the central bank is involved, so they might be more willing to spend money on hiring people, on new equipment, things of that nature. That is the theory, and we, we won't go over sort of the theoretical disputes here, but that's how it's supposed to work usually.
3: Yes, that's the theory. Uh, what's interesting is that when, admittedly, it's hard to figure out in practice how these things work in disentangling all the different channels, but when researchers have looked at this, they generally focus on the first two of those channels being the most important. In other words... Which of those? As you said, when, when the, the Fed goes and buys treasury bonds, that it lowers the yield on treasury bonds, and actually not necessarily the yield on other instruments, but treasury bonds specifically. Uh, and then other people have found that actually institutions like insurance companies or pension funds, for example, that say, well, you know, I used to own something that gave me a yield of 2.5%. And now if I want to go and buy it, it yields 2%. So I'll buy something else that yields 2.5%, which is going to be something riskier. So there's a this sort of portfolio balance channel where these entities will go and instead of buying government bonds, they'll buy corporate bonds or high-yield bonds or, so, or something like that, right. mortgage bonds.
1: Okay, but the, the key thing to remember as we start talking about people's QE is that in normal quantitative easing, the Fed or the central banking question is buying government bonds, government-issued bonds, or government-backed bonds, as might be the case with mortgage-backed securities. They're always backed by the government.
3: Yes. Although that's actually an interesting question related to, I think, the People's QE proposal, as some people on Jeremy Corbyn's camp have described it.
1: Now is the time to transition into People's QE. Sure. We've just discussed normal quantitative easing. People's quantitative easing, what is that?
3: So- the way that it's been described by Corbyn himself and by Richard Murphy, who is a Corbyn, or one of Corbyn's, I guess, economic advisors, and who's someone who seems to have taken credit for having come up with the concept of People's QE, is that the government would set up several specialized institutions that would issue debt to make infrastructure investments, healthcare spending, green investment banks, things like that. The Bank of England, when they go, would then go out and buy these bonds effectively subsidizing the cost of this investment spending and keeping it off of the central government's balance sheet so it doesn't show up as the, on the deficit now what's interesting about this i guess is there i think there's sort of two things one is that you don't actually need to have this happen there's no inherent reason the government could of course spend the money directly it could show up in the deficit that's not necessarily a problem i mean real interest rates in the uk are basically zero maybe a tiny bit more than zero right. but they're lower than the growth rate anyway of uk gdp so it's not really like this is a, a serious debt burden but uh, it seems pretty clear, at least as an outside American observer I can say this, that uh, the British uh, electorate is allergic to the idea of deficits and government debt uh, rightly or wrongly. Is it
1: the British electorate or is it the specific British politicians that have been elected and that encompass a wide variety of beliefs, but one of their beliefs happens to be they don't want deficit spending, whether or not that specific idea is supported by the majority sure. of the population. Sure. I
3: guess speaking, speaking as a tourist and outside observer, it looked as if that was something that even the opposition didn't really concede much the idea that the deficit was a central problem and okay. that was something that was ran on. I mean, whether that's why people voted for them or not is a different question. But right. it seems like that's sort of the consensus view, even among a lot of people running for labor now, is that the deficit needs to be... And then sort of question of how do you shrink the deficit. So this is, this is something that's in the imagination. And so if you have a way of boosting infrastructure spending it doesn't show up in the deficit, that's attractive. And then the broader question of, well, does QE work? And we say, well, it lowers interest rates. It makes borrowing a little bit easier. But if entities don't actually want to borrow and spend, that doesn't do much. So that's sort of the the thing people talk about, sort of the classic problem or disappointment. If you look at, say, forecasts that were made at the time of QE when it was first done in the U.S. and the U.K., there was an expectation that it would have a much bigger impact right off the bat in terms of inflation, in terms of jobs, in terms of real growth, which didn't materialize. Because essentially… There were constraints on people's willingness to borrow. People just weren't, even if you have a borrowing cost, inflation just a borrowing cost of zero or less, you still don't want to do it because you don't think there's good opportunities out there or you're worried about your ability to repay or people aren't willing to lend to you because you don't have good collateral bad credit, any of these reasons. So if you have an entity that directly is spending, that's going to be more effective. So the appeal of people's QE in that sense is that Instead guaranteed of just, stimulus, right, in a way. Right, right. Because it's, it's, only, it's basically saying, here, entities that are going to send an infrastructure, spend an infrastructure, we'll give you the money. And that is going to encourage them to do that. And I think actually this ties back to what you're saying about MBS uh, and what the Fed was doing, because people say this is a radical plan. And I, I mean, you can argue it's a good idea. You can argue whether it's necessary at this point in time. You can argue whether there are alternatives that might be better. But it's not actually radical. If we look at what the Fed did with MBS purchases, essentially it was saying – was we think there is a structural problem in financing the mortgage market in the U.S. because of the legacy of the housing boom and bust. And therefore, we are going to make a conscious effort to intervene and bring these prices back to normal. So we have these entities, uh, Fannie and Freddie, that go out and they buy loans that are made by banks and they put them into nice packaged, relatively uniform bonds. And then the Fed says we will commit to buying these bonds in trillions of dollars worth. And that understandably lowers the funding cost for these entities, and it basically is a free message, or it's a very clear message to the banks saying, look, if you make mortgages that fit the relatively straightforward rules of Fannie and Freddie, doesn't matter how many you
1: make, there's going to be a demand for people to buy them at very low rates, and you can fund them very cheaply. So it's an incentive. So Your, your main point here, though, by the way, is that – and you said this in your column – is that this has an intellectual pedigree that's, right. that's actually quite respected, that's that's like, right. that this is not some lunatic idea that – Yes, okay, it involves a certain amount of, I guess what you might say, is monetizing debt issuance by the government, right? Um, but this isn't something that came out of nowhere. That's right. And, actually, and, and you know, within the British context, uh, Adam Posen,
3: who was an external member of the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England back in 2011, admittedly economic circumstances were different then, but in terms of the transmission, he recognized that there was a problem at the time of British banks not lending to British small and medium enterprises. And he said, here's one solution that would work you can set up two new institutions. One would be a, a specialized public lender that would focus on making loans to these businesses. And then another would be a securitization agent that would pay, uh, set standards for these loans, buy them, guarantee them against the fall, package them into bonds, and sell them. And then he said the Bank of England could facilitate this by offering to uh, provide the startup capital to make these banks work, first of all, and and accept these uh, securities collateral and potentially even buy them into QE. Which sounds very similar. I mean... You know, small and medium enterprise lending versus, you know, green infrastructure products aren't the same, but it sounds conceptually pretty similar to me. And he seemed to think so as well, actually, after I wrote the piece. So I think that this is, again, we talked about the intellectual pedigree. It's not nearly as radical an idea as you might think, given all the other things that Jeremy Corbyn has expressed his beliefs in.
1: Right. So there is a basic issue here, though, that we should identify and then talk about a little more. I mean, the point of quantitative easing in the first place or of people's QE is that it's necessary because interest rates are at zero. This is considered the only alternative, right? And then within quantitative easing, there's the question of, well, do you try to manipulate the economy? Do you try to stimulate the economy by tweaking interest rates and by sending signals and things like that? Or do you force spending to happen immediately? And then within that category, there's also a suite of options, right? In this case, people's QE has been, associated with infrastructure spending, right? Which sounds, I think, pretty reasonable. But there are other ideas, and they all come down to the issue of getting money into the hands of people or institutions who will spend it. So if it's not infrastructure, another idea would be just to send the money to households, right? That's sort of, I think, what's normally considered a Ben Bernanke-esque helicopter drop, which is that the government issues the debt, the central bank buys the debt, and then takes the money, and it And it sends it directly to people who are more likely to spend it right? Right. or who will, I don't know, pay down their own debt and offset some of the private sector debt with zero increase in public sector debt because the central bank bought it. right? That's the basic idea. It's the separation of these two things. On the one hand, the central bank needing to stimulate the economy, and on the other hand, the difficulty of getting money into the hands of people who will actually spend it.
3: Right. The problem is that it's an extremely indirect mechanism what the central bank can do right now. If we look at it mechanically, we look at the economists who've studied this, the finance academics who've studied this, what they find is that the central bank has a reasonably good ability to affect things like bank leverage, which... I guess it's interesting and useful, especially if you think about sort of the new financial stability mandate that seems to have cropped up in a lot of these institutions. But if you relate that to an inflation target or you know, a growth employment target, it's, it's, it's very, very loosely connected. It's much easier, much more straightforward to, as you said, actually connect a policy of saying we want people to spend more with things that will actually get them to spend more. You know, Marginally lowering the interest rate on short-term interbank debt, which is what normally is done doesn't really flow through in, in a direct, clear way. If you have a situation where you say, oh, we want, we think there should be more spending in the economy, which is essentially what central bankers are thinking when they say we want to stimulate, then it makes a lot more sense for them to say, well, we want more spending. We can give actual people money and they will spend it. At least they'll spend some of it. Or something roughly equivalent will say, okay, there's this institution we have set up separate to the central bank that makes infrastructure investments at various points in time adjusted sort of for the economic cycle. And we're going to say, do more infrastructure spending, and here's the money to do it. Don't worry about paying us back you know anything besides the principal, maybe.
1: Sure. We, we should, though, raise the problem, right? We should raise the issue of why it is that there's resistance to this because it sounds sensible, but the issue here is that we have a separation right now between fiscal and monetary policy, and there is a question of the extent to which a central bank should be determining the composition of the stimulus itself. In other words, uh, should the central bank be choosing – the infrastructure projects that people are going to spend money on? Should the central bank be choosing which households get stimulus money and which don't? Should the central bank be choosing where the money itself is spent, or should it just be very broadly trying to stimulate the economy and letting economic private economic actors make those decisions? That is not an easy question to answer. In other words, with quantitative easing itself, you still have this issue to some extent. Um, But with people's QE, it's in your face. It's very direct.
3: Well, what's interesting is that I guess I'd say two things. One is, as you mentioned, it very much is an issue even now uh, in terms of that people talk about, they acknowledge, in fact, their distributional effects. There was a great paper given at Jackson Hole, I think maybe three or four years ago, called The Distributional Effects of Monetary Policy. And the argument was, uh, or asset purchase, or something like that. The essential point was, no, this is what we want. We have have, uh, entities who own certain kinds of long duration risky assets and they're underwater because they borrowed a lot against these assets and they lost value. So therefore if the government can boost the value of these assets, these entities will be better off and we'll get more spending. That's arguably unfair because people who own assets in general tend to be wealthier. And in fact the the Bank of England did a long study, I think again this was in twenty twelve, basically looking at the distributional effect of what they were doing. And they found that yes, it mostly works by pushing up asset prices and assets are generally owned by rich people right. that's sort of what makes someone rich if they own assets so there there is a distributional impact there in terms of the composition of where it goes there's also i mean within the u.s there's been a big debate about within the fomc about the propriety of the agency mortgage-backed securities purchases but for the view that oh well this is effectively distorting policy in favor of credit allocation towards households
1: operation twist same kind of thing, right. targeting mortgages. right
3: uh, that's been a concern on the other hand I sympathize with this, but it's something that's clearly been accepted both in the U.S. In uh, the Bank of England, people did the funding for lending scheme, which is a sort of, again, it wasn't quite what Posen was suggesting, but again, there's sort of a targeted at small to medium enterprise right, loans. Right. In Europe, you have the ABS purchases. So there's clearly a comfort level within central banks for making these kinds of decisions whether or not they it should. I would call
1: a discomfort level. I would say that this was sort of an unavoidable thing that we still haven't solved. In other words, to me... One of the big legacy problems of the financial crisis and how we responded to it was that these issues are sort of unavoidable, and yet there is no easy solution. We're still trying to figure it out. You mentioned the distributional consequences. Actually, there's a lot of papers that have contradictory findings on that now, That's right? That's actually not a settled thing. In other words, the extent to which monetary policy at the zero lower bound does or does not increase inequality isn't settled. It's not clear. And so the appropriate mechanism is still not obvious to anyone. There's a lot of ideas, not just around something like people's QE, but also giving the Fed direct control over, for instance, payroll taxes, right? Whether it should be able to move them up and down in a crisis and combine those with nominal GDP targeting and other ideas. But my point is, we just don't know yet that this is all going to be pieced through Right. for a long time to come, that despite the fact that the crisis is now six years in the past, we still don't know, and we might not know until the next crisis. hits right. again, we might not know by then even. Uh, and it's a fascinating discussion, but we are out of time. Matt Klein, awesome. Always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And finally, a big week. In investing and selling activity across the media landscape. I'm joined by Shannon Bond, the FT's media correspondent. Shannon, welcome back. Thanks, Carter. Welcome back from holidays. Where did you go?
0: I went to the Pacific Northwest and it was beautiful.
1: Okay. Well, you don't belong there. You (laughs) you belong here in the studio with us talking about what happened this week. So tell us.
0: So, first of all, Pearson, uh, the now former owner of the FT, the about-to-be former owner
1: of yes. the FG? Yeah, but but they've already announced the sale, so we, we can trash them all we want now. All right.
0: Uh, they have done as as has been trailed and expected. They've sold their half-stake in The Economist, the well-known magazine, uh, to the existing shareholders. So they've now exited from their, you know, their two huge media properties. Fully out. The one media property they have left is they still have a 47% stake in Penguin Random House, uh, the book publisher. But this is, we're, we're seeing Pearson well on the way to being completely out of the media business.
1: What else happened?
0: Uh, we also had some really interesting uh, investments and valuations in the world of digital media. So, NBC Universal, which is owned by Comcast, the big cable group, they have made a $200 million investment in Vox Media. At a evaluation that we're told is about a billion dollars. Vox is a collection of websites. Um, they've sort of said they want to be the time, Inc. for the 21st century. So they have a sports blog and they have a real estate blog, fashion. And Vox.com. Vox.com, uh, which sort of covers current events, news. Uh, and they bought Recode earlier this summer, the tech news website. That's right. Uh, and so they've, they've kind of amassed you know, a, a portfolio of a bun- you know, in a bunch of different areas and are doing some really interesting stuff in terms of getting readers' attention, not just on their sites, but they're doing a lot of the, the model that BuzzFeed has done with dis- distributing on Facebook. They're heavily into branded content and creating content for advertisers. Um, and, and you can s-
1: embed their content on other sites as well no? exactly.
0: Exactly. And we've also heard that uh, NBC is not done with uh, shelling out the money to, to media startups. Um, BuzzFeed itself is also, looks like it's in line to get money from NBC. That has not been announced yet, but we reported last week that uh, NBC is looking at putting another 200, 250 into BuzzFeed at a valuation that would probably be more in the realm of $1.5 $1.5
1: Okay, so that that deal has not necessarily gone through yet. Those are talks. Right, exactly. So I guess my first question is, what does this tell us about what's happening within media? Because the first thing that comes to mind is that these two properties, Vox and BuzzFeed, are now worth about what the Financial Times and The Economist are worth. That's right. If you juxtapose those two things, right? The the FT was just sold for, I believe, the equivalent of $1.3 million U.S., Hold on. The sharp-eared producer Amy Keene has just told me that I said $1.3 million. In fact, $1.3 billion, of course, is what the FT was sold for. All right. So the point is this, is that they're all roughly in the same realm. This is fascinating. The Economist and the FT have been around since the 19th century. Vox and BuzzFeed were founded, I think, two weeks ago. <laughs> uh, this is kind of incredible, right.
0: right? Yeah, no, it is kind of incredible. It's interesting. I mean, it's essentially – you know, this is the brave new world of... feels almost really outdated to call this stuff digital media. I mean, we're all supposed to be digital media now. But these groups are really being viewed quite differently than traditional media companies. I mean we're not looking if you're actually looking at you know revenue and profit, you know, that we're talking about multiples that are wildly different. Conveniently this week, Gawker got a hold of some of BuzzFeed internals, so we know a little bit about their financials. In 2013, they made 7 million in profit on 64 million in revenue. And in the first six months of 2014, they were already at nearly 3 million in profit on 46 million in revenue. So it's that kind of trajectory I think that's really supporting the valuations that we've seen. Now Andreessen Horowitz, the Silicon Valley investors led the last round in BuzzFeed late last year, which they put in 50 million at like an 850 million valuation. So you know, this is growing really fast and part of the reason that people like NBC are interested in getting a piece of this is that you know we all know the the entire sort of landscape of how people are consuming media is really changing and places like Vox and Buzzfeed are seen as having an audience that the traditional media companies are just not reaching
1: and now we have these companies these young companies who don't have the burden of printing a newspaper or printing a right. magazine right. they just they just have their talent that's probably one of their biggest costs if not their biggest cost right. is hiring people right and if they're making money then there's the chance that their revenues will continue to grow at the pace that you just mentioned in the case of BuzzFeed
0: that's right and they they are doing something a bit differently in advertising as well as the, which you know a lot of the traditional news organizations when they first were going online were sort of trying to do the kind of the same type of advertising, so display advertising, right, which is kind of the equivalent of what you would have had in print newspaper pages. What is display advertising? So those are the ads you see, say, like a banner ad across the top of the web page or maybe you know, a, an ad down the side of the web page, um, but kind of don't do a lot. Maybe you click on them, it takes you to a website. You know, that's sort of the old model. It's increasingly less popular, and it's pretty cheap, too. The innovations that you know certainly BuzzFeed are have, have really pushed into, and you know in Vox and some of the other companies are quickly following, is in not just selling space on their pages that their readers see, but actually creating content for the advertisers. So they're almost becoming as much an ad agency as a editorial operation, right? So sure. Which create- raises
1: the age-old question of editorial independence and right. the extent to which. Uh, You end up confusing the reader on what is content that's been produced by journalists, objective journalists, or at least just journalists who are free from conflicts of interest and interference, and what's content that's been produced or at least directed by the advertisers, the people who have paid money to have specific placement on the website.
0: Particularly because that content. It intentionally looks like the rest of their content. So it's a listicle, say, on the case of BuzzFeed, right? So it looks kind of a lot uh, very similar to what you would see elsewhere on BuzzFeed. And then you know, sort of the next step of that is, is not just that the, that listicle appears on BuzzFeed. What BuzzFeed is essentially telling the advertiser is, you, know, you pay us, and this is going to go viral. We're going to put it on Facebook. We're going to put it on Snapchat. We're going to put it on Twitter. And people are going to know about it. People are going to be talking about it. And it's going to reach a much broader audience, even than those people who just come to the BuzzFeed page.
1: Sure, although something that that's been increasingly obvious in the case of BuzzFeed is that throughout the last few years, they've been getting very, very serious about hiring not just – serious journalists, but big-name journalists, yep. people that are well-known in traditional media circles and people that we know are going to do good work. In other words, trusted journalists. I mean, it seems like there's no slowing them down in that regard. I mean, I think they're worth taking seriously.
0: Yeah. No, and they're spending a lot of money on that, too. I mean, in the first half of last year, their editorial budget was at, you know, $10.5 million. You know, just a few years before, it was under a million. So that that shows you. I mean, they're hiring – um, they're hiring incredible people. They're hiring people who are doing really good work and doing, act- you know, hard-hitting reporting, which then exists alongside sort of the cat videos that everyone jokes about, and alongside advertiser content in a way that is pretty different than when this you think about. This <laughs>
1: podcast has been brought to you by BuzzFeed. Full disclosure: This podcast has not been brought to you by BuzzFeed, uh, but it's actually true. I mean, that's 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 been their model for exactly. the last few years, okay. exactly.
0: And, you know, and and, and Vox has, has done sort of similar things. They have their own what's called a branded content studio. So they work with advertisers. They're doing a lot in video. And, again, these are things that don't just live on Vox.com or on Racked or SB Nation. Right. These live on the Facebook pages um, and elsewhere. And they, have, they can really tap into a broader audience there. And so there's, you know, they're, they're spending a lot of money there. And that's what a lot of the investment will go towards, you know, sort of supporting their ability to hire good journalists, to do more you know when it comes to particularly visual content they're all really excited about you know the opportunities they have whether it's YouTube or Snapchat or Vine you know to do video there buzzfeed has a division in LA vox has
1: also opened an LA office to make sort of more feature type content but i mean it's also clear that the traditional companies are doing their damnedest to catch up it's not like they have been without their own changes or without their own evolution or without even their own, if you want to call it victories in that regard, the New York Times and the FT and the Wall Street Journal all have paywalls. And I guess to me, the question is, well, to what extent is that going to be a better model than the sort of more open and easy to access model that. Fox and BuzzFeed have.
0: Right. I mean, certainly, you know, for us, not to toot our own horn, it has been successful. I mean, we have, and for the Journal, too, as, as well, who has, you know, where you have a fairly expensive subscription, um, we're getting a lot of revenue from our readers. And so that's also, you know, it's never a bad thing to have your revenue coming from two different sources, right? So you can get the ad revenue, you can also get the reader revenue, and maybe you're then a little more insulated, but it is a, it is a different kind of model, and, you know, certainly, you know, at the FT, we don't ha- we haven't yet done native ads or branded content. Um, the New York Times has experimented with that, but they've they say they've been pretty happy with how it's gone. But they've also kind of been very careful in how
1: they've approached it. We're, and let's saying- not be coy. There have been rounds of layoffs at all of those companies exactly. in yeah. the last few years.
0: Yeah, no, and I think that you know everyone a lot of this stuff it's it's very much still a brave new world. And I think you know one of the things that's instructive why a company like Comcast. Would invest. So they've previously invested, they have a venture arm, Comcast Ventures, that's previously invested in Vox. Now they've, you know, NBC Universal is putting this money in. You know, what does Comcast get out of this? I mean, they get a lot of exposure to to this new world. You know, they get to see sort of what works. You know, who knows if one day down the line they'll end up just full on buying one of these companies, but they're getting a lot of intel for their own operations.
1: Shannon Bond, DFT's media correspondent. Always a pleasure.
0: Always a pleasure to see you.
1: And in today's follow-up segment, Emilia Mahasuk is back to constructively criticize the last podcast episode, and that is itself a constructive way of saying, here to tell me everything I did wrong. Emilia, <laughs> welcome back.
4: Thank you, Cardiff. You didn't do anything wrong at all, <laughs> ever, never. Um, what did you think? So the only segment I think could have used improving upon was the Puerto Rico debt segment where you okay. were talking about municipal debt and the complexities of debt in that Commonwealth territory. And I thought that could have used a bit of human context. So when we talked about the Detroit defaults, we heard about the ambulances not running on time, the electricity cutouts, that kind of thing. And I thought the human context was missing in Puerto Rico, where I gather they've had their own problems, cuts to education system, increased taxes. And I think all of uh, what we do here tends to benefit from a human context context.
1: In other words, when we talk about cuts to public services and things of that nature, actually we're talking about things that really do affect people's lives. And there's also, by the way, in in the context of Puerto Rico, there's an added complication, which is that when we refer to the island's creditors, right, we forget that actually some of those creditors are also residents of Puerto Rico, right? And so it adds this kind of extra layer of nuance. That was something I certainly regretted not getting into a little bit more. So, okay, good point have to add the human context to what we do so that we don't look like we're a bunch of automatons.
4: Well, you know, it's very easy for people to start talking about different layers of debt and what it means to the hedge funds. And how. And in fact, of course, hedge funds have pensioners involved in their investment profile too, so you have that knock-on effect all around. But I was interested to read, because there has been migration from Puerto Rico to the U.S., I was interested to read that, that the Philadelphian population of... Puerto Ricans has grown in the last, actually, since 2006.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of related, too, because we use this phrase, out-migration from Puerto Rico, people leaving Puerto Rico. Well, we should be talking about the fact that this is a pretty traumatic thing for a lot of people. They're not leaving, in most cases, just because they feel like having a holiday in the mainland United States. They're leaving because the economic situation there is desperate, because it looks like it's hopeless because they see their friends and other family members leaving and they don't think that things are going to turn around they're leaving their homes this isn't you know this isn't a, a matter of people you know scooting off to the better place for a little while because they might come back i mean this is not easy so puerto rican citizens are american citizens but at the same time they grew up in a place that does have a distinctive identity. That's actually something we should do a better job in general, not just myself and you know, people who report on this, but just every, all of us. We, we could do a better job of understanding that this is not an easy process, that when we're talking about these sovereign debt situations, or in this case municipal debt situations, that there is a real human context there that's often missing. Great right. point.
4: And I think if you do a follow-up also, if I can forward suggest, on Cuba... <laughs> At some point that I'd be really interested in, you know, when we talk about the U.S.-Cuban economic interchange, what the sort of human aspect of that is, particularly on migration.
1: Right. The the only problem with something like that is that I would essentially be interviewing myself (laughs) – Right, <laughs> I'm the Cuba guy at the FT right hey, now. Hey, that never right. happened. In, in New York. I mean, <laughs> uh, we gotta get, we have to get JP Rathbone in from uh, from London to visit us and to do a, a segment on that. And then or he and some I can talk friends
4: about and relatives. You, you know, there must be other Cubans <laughs> where you can talk to about this. Sure, yeah. Uh, excellent. Thank you, Cardiff.
1: Thanks, Emilia Mahasek. No, I have to say, I, oh, I, you have to say yeah. thank
4: you. Okay,
1: <laughs> Emilia Mahasek, thanks. Always a pleasure.
4: Thanks, Cardiff.
1: And that's all the time we have left for today. Again, Joe Stiglitz is in next week. If you want to call in or write us with questions, you can find us at 917-551-5012 or at, at ft.com. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast has been produced and edited by the amazing Amy Keene. She even picks the music and keeps me from looking and sounding like an idiot. Thanks, Amy. We'll see everybody next week.